Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. What's the most significant political economic division in Britain today? No, it's not Brexit v Remain or Market v State or any of the internecine squabbling about tax rates between the Tory PM candidates Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. The real split is between boosters and doomsters, according to The Economist Sam Bowman. In a recent article on Substack that went viral, he defined these two economic animals. Both boosters and doomsters start from the same position, that Britain has got itself into a hole in the last three decades as productivity growth has faltered from 2.5% per year in the 1980s to less than half a percent in the last few years. And they don't even disagree on many of the headwinds. Poor demographics, not enough housing, clapped out infrastructure, etc. Where they differ is that boosters think there are things we can do to make things better and grow the economy more quickly. Doomsters, meanwhile, basically say this slowdown is beyond our control and we're just going to have to suck it up. Now, Sam himself, who joins us today, self-identifies as a booster and hopefully he'll explain a bit about his credo. Neil, though, I suspect, I have a feeling you might be a bit of a doomster. Well, I'm... Where do you sit? I'm sort of dithery in the middle, really. I don't say it's impossible to get out of the sort of slough of despond that we're in at the moment, but I think it's going to require some sort of change in the general way that we look at things. Okay. So I'd say I'm a a bit more positive than you. I'd say I'm a booster, but one who's prone to fits of doomsterish pessimism from time to time. (laughs) Perhaps become more frequently recently. Sam, perhaps you can tell us a bit about why you came to write this article and tell us a bit more about doomsters and boosters and what they believe. Well, I think you did a really good job of um, describing the kind of basics of the booster is in lots of ways the the optimist, you know, the one who thinks that it's in our power to change the trajectory that we're on, whereas a doomster is in some ways a pessimist, somebody who thinks that kind of no matter what we do, we're locked into this kind of misery and malaise. But in a weird way, the origins of those kind of reverse the optimism versus the pessimism, because the worse you think our policy situation is, the more likely you are to be a booster, because the more you think we can change to improve our trajectory. Whereas if you think that we have, you know, we've done as well as we can on the really big issues on the on kind of things like tax and spending and housing and stuff like that, then you sort of think, well, there's not that much left to do. There's not that much left to improve. One of the reasons that I am a booster, to answer your question, and why I think some of us should be boosters, is that I think that almost every layer of the British state that you look at from a civil service point of view and a public service point of view to things like regulation, especially around planning, to not just how much we tax, but I think a much more interesting question of what we tax and how we tax. In almost all of those areas, my diagnosis is we've messed up really, really badly and um, things have gotten really dramatically off course. So I think really when I look at the British state, I think it's just at this point of incredible sclerosis. I think it's incredibly 
failed in lots of ways in lots of areas where you might be able to make big cost savings in the long run by making small expenditures in the short run. We're not doing that. So we had a real kind of penny wise, pound foolish attitude to spending. And that makes me really optimistic because it, <laughs> as, as terrible as all that is, it makes me think, all right, well, you know, we can fix that. And it becomes a political and a policy problem. And I think that a lot of the people that I've spoken to since having written the piece say, you know, well, I'm, I'm kind of a pessimistic booster. I'm somebody who thinks that in theory, we could mm, make the country a lot richer. But in practice, you know, it's just impossible. You know, we have a kind of nimby stranglehold over planning reform and over housing. We have an incredible amount of special interest in lobbying and say over regulation and tax and things like that. And to me, that's that's the real challenge. And that's the thing that if you agree that there are lots of potential avenues for growth on the table, then the, the challenge to people like us is, okay, how do we do it? And how do we stop talking about doing this? And how do we actually get it done? No, well, obviously, reading the article, it's very clear that you're arguing from the perspective as a booster against a, a system where the doomsters are in control. Doomsterism is on the rise and boosterism is on the defensive. Why do you think the doomsters have such a, a stranglehold on the uh, public discourse? Part of the reason that I wrote it was to try to articulate that this is the case so that the division becomes a bit clearer and so Mm. that we can sort of understand one another. And I should say I have a huge amount of respect both for the people that I call doomsters and for the ideas that underlie it. You know, Dietrich Volrath, who is this economist, has a book called Fully Grown, who argues that kind of we should be celebrating slow growth, not because slow growth is a good thing, but because it reflects that we have reached this point of economic maturity and we've reached a point where we realize there's more to life than just slashing the state and things like that. I must say, I, I, I disagree profoundly with that. I don't think there's anything in this that I think that's a sort of ideology of despair. Well, you sound like a booster to me. And I do agree. I, I don't ultimately buy the Volrathian thesis. But look at something like housing. In my opinion, housing shortages are behind or at least contribute to basically every problem that the Western world has. So not just high living costs, but also slow productivity growth, weak innovation rates, low fertility, global warming, obesity, yada, yada. Go, the, the list is, is not quite endless, but close to <laughs> obesity. it. Obesity. <laughs> Absolutely. Because the way we built our cities, especially in places like the US, but I mean, think about how the debate in the UK exists around more development. It's always about greenfield. It's always about building out and building more suburbia. It's very seldom about building more densely and about getting more houses into city centres and doing the other things like road pricing and making public transport more viable as an option that would allow density and allow people to be close together. Yeah, I must say I fear we're in danger of agreeing on this because I really do feel that housing is the root cause of a lot of our problems. But it seems to me that if you're a booster, you need to be able to find some sort of way forward, perhaps in saying, why are houses so ludicrously expensive? And how could we make them cheaper without uh, destroying the finances of a big chunk of the population? I have a ready-made answer to that. Excellent. Which which, uh, (laughs) we we could go to now, but just to answer Jonathan's point, I think it's basically very high status to be a pessimist. And I think it's very high status to find flaws and fault and basically to be a critic. And I'm not saying that this is the motivation of any of the people that I'm talking about. But I think it's why those people end up kind of being sorted up to the top of the kind of social pyramid or the the commentary pyramid. Putting out new ideas or putting out positive suggestions 
almost invariably will require you to be wrong a lot of the time. It almost invariably requires you to speak about things you don't know that much about and to kind of be a bit of a dilettante. And that's a word I'd use to describe boosters. I, I think that boosters have <laughs> I thought to you're, you're describing journalists, actually, I think, probably. What I've noticed, though, is more a journalist seems to know a lot about a single area, the more pessimistic they seem to be. There's that old kind of Robert Conquest, the Conquest third law. Everybody's a conservative about the thing he knows best. And I think that's a really bad thing. I think maybe Conquest meant that <laughs> as a reflection on conservatism. Yeah. I kind of see that as more of a, the more you've learned, the more you can see all of the barriers to the things that maybe should be done in principle. Whereas the outsider can better see opportunities and can better see, you know, why are we doing it that way? Or why don't we just try doing it that way and see what happens? It's also just a, a, I think, possibly a hangover of the government that we had from kind of 2010 on, where there was a huge, and I think it successfully won the intellectual argument that deficit spending was always a big problem that, you know, you must never, ever really think about any public finance change, whether it's a tax cut or whether it's a spending increase without being able to pay for it. And I think that although I actually personally kind of agree with that, or my, my heart is at that end, I think that that focus on deficits really dominates a lot of the economic policy discussion. And in terms of priority, I think it's over-prioritized, even though I think that sort of at the end of the day, it's a reasonable thing to think about. Yes, well, I have to I have to say, I have to put up my own hand here and say, I, when I was at the Financial Times, I spent a lot of time re- writing editorials in support of the <laughs> coalition's uh, deficit reduction strategy. Although I was maintained that they didn't actually reduce the deficit by that much, despite all the um, rhetoric around reduction. You know, I, I also wrote many things in favour of that approach. I think personally, it was still the right thing to do. The problem was that we didn't do anything else. You know, the problem was that while cutting spending and while balancing the budget, which is which is a very reasonable thing to do, we didn't do any of the things to increase growth that don't require deficit spending. Yeah. Planning reform is the one that I've mentioned. Yeah. Tax reform is a huge one. There are huge things that we can do to change how we tax and to to shift the burden even within things like corporation tax to, for example, tax investment in machinery and buildings and things like that less than we do now and, and basically move to a full expensing type system. This is sort of uh, nuts and bolts trying to improve efficiency, which is actually terribly dull in terms of political clout. I don't think there was any evidence that the government in recent years has been remotely interested in any of the things that you've been talking about because they don't grab headlines. A pledge to say we're going to simplify the tax system might appear on page six if you were lucky, but probably will be completely ignored because it's not sexy. How would you suggest that we make it so we get to the point where the ruling government of either party is not just playing to the gallery all the time, which is what we've been become used to, and instead saying, well, actually, this is jolly dull. We're just going to carry on simplifying things, trying to make things that we're doing work better, trying perhaps even to do it with fewer people, and that sort of thing. How do you get that sort of message across? I agree with you, but I think a lot of the way you framed the point is, is it kind of goes to the heart of the problem. Basically, I agree with Roger Douglas, who was the New Labour ah, New Zealand. Rogernomics. Rogernomics, indeed. And I agree with him on the point that you have to let the dog see the fox, right? With economic growth, people don't vote for you saying, oh, guess what? We're going to grow the economy. 
they will vote for you having grown the economy. They will vote for you if they have felt in their own lives and in their own outgoings and incomings that they have become better off. They won't vote for you saying, oh, well, guess what? We're going to change the capital relief structure for heavy machinery. Ah, good, good luck, everybody. Go, you know, Get excited about voting for us. Really, the approach has to be quiet, beneath the surface reforms that don't create massive amounts of political backlash, that take advantage of the fact that there are lots of huge potential wealth gains, or if, if we believe there are, and use some of those wealth gains to either buy off the opponents or share with the opponents, people who would be the losers, some of the benefits. So with housing, for example, if you agree with me that the UK is something like between 10 and 20% poorer than it could be because the housing market is so messed up, then number one, your first thought is, well, let's smash these NIMBYs. It turns out in the UK, the NIMBYs smash you. You know, we, we don't have a political coalition that can beat NIMBYs, I don't think. And I think it's a slight waste of time to try and build one. What I'm more interested in is what are the mechanisms we can introduce that buy off NIMBYs on a kind of bottom-up local way so that they want housing to be built near them or so that they want their own streets to be given permission to build more densely. There are, you know, street votes is the idea that some people that I am friends with and I have been involved in, which kind of devolves to the street level, the decision about how densely you can build. And the reason you might do that is because if you and your neighbors vote that everybody can build up to five stories and you live in a two up, two down outside Brixton, in the kind of neighborhood I live in, then you'll become a lot richer just through that vote. <laughs> okay. Best of luck with that. It sounds yeah, okay, like a, okay. a recipe for internecine <laughs> strife. Okay, we don't me. need to. We don't need to go into it. But you touch on something which is, is sort of at the heart of the argument you're having with the doomsters, which is you say... We can do stuff that will make a difference. So why the hell don't we do it? It'll make a big difference. And they say, yes, you could, but it won't make much difference. And so it's just going to be a big argument about not very much. All the buying off you think you can do won't be done because, of course, you, get, you won't have the upside. So the question I have is, how can you demonstrate that there is this upside? Is there a, for example, you mentioned New Zealand a few minutes ago. Is there an example of a boosterish state which got itself into a bit of a hole like Britain, which then turned itself around by doing these things and unlocking growth in the way you think we can? Not to not to put too fine a point on it, but I think there is an example. I think that example is Britain, to be honest, oh, in the nineteen eighties and nineties. It's very, very dramatic when you look at the UK's GDP per capita based to that of the United States and relative to that of the other major European countries. There's a really stark convergence, acceleration in the UK's relative position from around 1980. Now, I'm not saying that everything was perfect by any means, but I do think that the, that the UK in its own history has lived through a period of deep, deep malaise that has been, I think, corrected on. But I mean, there's another, there's another amazing example that we're watching right now, which is South Korea has gone from basically being a dictatorship, a police state within living memory, to being not just a rapidly growing, rapidly advancing Asian tiger economy, but to being at the cusp of overtaking the UK in terms of GDP per capita. It's already overtaken most other East Asian countries. What's so interesting about South Korea is that, you know, we talk about, oh, well, we've got real big problems in the UK with demographics. Our aging society is a huge problem. The median age in the UK is 40 and a half years. The median age in South Korea is 43.7 years. So South Korea has got an older population than we have, but it's growing at a much faster clip than we have. And had we experienced something like South Korean levels of growth, or even the sort of levels of growth that we had running up to 2008, we would be something like 30% richer now than we are. 
So within kind of living memory, the UK, I think, has reformed itself quite a bit, although clearly something's gone wrong since then. South Korea is a country that has managed to grow very rapidly. And I think that this sort of goes to a, a more general point that a lot of the diagnoses that kind of intellectually are appealing to doomsters make sense if you're at the technological frontier like the United States, but they don't really make sense for a country like the UK that is, in fact, a lot poorer than we often think we are. Really, we should be thinking more like a sort of South Korean country where we're thinking, how do we urbanize? You know, we talk about urbanization in the context of development economics a lot, but the UK is a highly under-urbanized economy and highly under-urbanized country because of the housing system. How do you get that message across to sufficient number of people to keep you in power? when your power base essentially relies on people who think the opposite and they think that the England's green and pleasant land is mostly built on. And they're not really very interested in the facts. That's their view. And they certainly don't want to see that nice green field next to their house being built on. Well, in a way, we don't have to have that argument. And I, you know, I, I've been trying to have more liberal housing laws for about 12 years now and have consistently failed. And for a lot of that time, I've been trying to make this argument. You know, look, we've built on between sort of 2 and 7% of the country, depending on how you define it. And there's a lot of England left to build on. And, and in fact, building out would make things like gardens and parks cheaper so we could have a more green and pleasant urban life. But I think you're right. It's really hard to make that argument. And I don't think that's really the argument that we're going to win. The argument that I think is much more compelling is that we're not using the land we have built on efficiently enough. So this goes back to densification. There are so many areas, especially in places like London, that have massively underdeveloped for where they are, for their access to public transport, really for their access to walking to urban places. You know, I'm in Old Street right now, kind of Silicon Roundabout, it's sort of humorously called by some places. I can literally look out the window and see two-story houses. There is something badly wrong when that is happening in one of the most uh, high-productivity places in the world. That's the challenge. And I think the challenge is, A, having that kind of discussion about housing, about suburban and urban intensification, and B, coming up with the sort of mechanisms that I, that I talked about, and clearly mine isn't the only one, to actually get that kind of housing built in a way that doesn't create kind of massive political backlash. Oh. <laughs> just, I just want to broaden that out for a second, which is, is, is there not some sort of um, trap or shackle that one needs to break, which is, you know, you make the parallel with South Korea. Obviously, South Korea and other developing countries, middle income going to high income countries, are ones which by definition have a lot of growth and therefore people are quite focused on getting a piece of the growth. We're in a different space, which is one where growth is low and people are, as we've just discussed with housing, very, very focused on all sorts of distributional questions about protecting their share of the cake as opposed to growing it very much. Is that not a problem in kind of unleashing, if we can unleash growth, that we're stuck in this mindset which essentially makes people more focused on preserving their share than actually seeing the whole cake grow very much? Yeah, I mean, I think mindset is clearly a huge issue here. But I would say that we are increasingly becoming a middle income country that thinks of itself as a rich country. We have many political debates as if we have the luxury of allowing economic growth to come second and to just think about, okay, what do we do with the spoils of growth? Mm. And I think that the more we realize that, you know, we have significant problems, not just to do with GDP per capita, you know, that's a that's obviously a flawed, a flawed measure. Mm. But by almost, by almost any measure you like, you know, whether it's quality of the health service, whether it's the size of the houses we live in, whether it's wealth, 
output per hour worked by almost any way you cut it, we are sliding down the rankings and we are becoming more and more like a country that South Korea would dread to be than somewhere that somewhere like South Korea or, or another fast growing economy would like to be. I don't think that there's any straightforward answer to how you get people to change thinking that way. I think that there have been dramatic moments in the past, you know, the winter of discontent. I was always brought up by, you know, my dad talking about the winter of discontent as a sort of thing he lived through, the IMF <laughs> yeah, well, bailout. Some of us are old enough to have been, lived through all this stuff. It wasn't much fun in the winter of discontent, I can assure you. I'm sure we're going to be living through something similar but, quite soon. You know, well. I, as far as I can see, there is no public realization of this. All the argument is about subsidies and more spending on good causes and, you know, we're not up to our peer groups in Europe, not because we are poorer, which we are, but because we're not spending enough on it. And you don't have to listen to the Today programme for long to hear another plea for more resources. You really and are basically a doomster. Neil. I'm not a doomster. I'm, I'm not at all. I'm not at all. You're a doomster pretending no, no, to be a I'm booster. Not, I, listen, <laughs> listen, I don't think these problems are insoluble, but I think that the mindset of people who are being fed this stuff has got to change. There is no such thing as a free lunch. And if we don't get growth, we will become poorer because probably if you don't grow, you shrink. But uh, the question I have, Sam, is are we at an IMF moment, you know, when uh, Britain gets a great kick in the pants, even people, you, you know, the equivalent of the sort of doomsters, I suppose, in the 1970s, where they're kind of the Labour government to some extent and the incomes policies and union sort of stuff that they were engaged in. And finally, they ended up sort of having to say, well, actually, we're on the wrong track. Do you see any sign that that we're nearing a similar turning point where politically people say, actually, we need to get real and start thinking about a different way of doing things? Or, or do you think we may well jog on for a few more decades? Oh, I see. You're, <laughs> until you're, until you're I'm in an old age now. person's home. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible to answer it because I, and I think everybody who considers himself to be a booster, should be spending all of their energies to wake people up and to change course. Do I think that I and the, the people that I think care about growth will succeed? I have no idea. Very encouraging to see Keir Starmer, for example, say that you know economic growth is a, is a core part of a Labour government's campaign. I may not agree with his methods, uh, I certainly won't, but the fact that it seems to be kind of politically salient enough for him to prioritise that, you know, that that's a good sign. But to me, the kind of ultimate message and, and sort of the fundamental reason that I wrote the post is to say to people that, you know, I talk to and people that I follow on Twitter and follow me. If it's not us, then, it, then it's not going to be anybody else. This isn't going to happen by magic. And now that I am at a point where I see the political landscape and I know most of the people who are involved in this kind of thing, and there really isn't that much out there other than people who may think, may think of themselves as not important or as sort of minor Twitter users or substackers or whatever it might be, that those are the people who really set the agenda in the long run. So my hope is that people think about what they can do in their own areas. You know, it doesn't all have to be about housing. It doesn't all have to be about tax. It can be about how do, how do we reduce congestion, for example, which I think is hugely important, or how do we make the police force more efficient, which again, I think is hugely important from a growth point, from an economic growth point of view, or make the health service work. Basically, we need people to think about and come up with 
incremental areas that that create the seeds of their own improvement, that, that create more demand for improvement. Yeah, I think we did actually have that under parts of the new Labour government. Well, things can only get better. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week.